having discussed the characteristics of a disciple today, I want to ask this question. What is the cost of discipleship? Because we know this, that anything worthwhile in life is going to cost us something, right? If there's something that you want to attain or press into, it's going to cost you something. And we ought to count the cost when it comes to following Jesus. In fact, Jesus urged his followers to count the cost. But have we taken the time to think about the cost of following Jesus? And have we settled in our hearts that we're willing to follow him no matter what the cost? Martin Luther said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worthless. Understand today, the world has always been a difficult, it's been a, a trying place for those who are serious about following Jesus. In general, we've been isolated from persecution in America, okay? But make no mistake about it, it it, it has gone on for so many years. The statistics of persecution throughout history are staggering. If you want to get some perspective on what it means to suffer for faith in Jesus Christ, just pick up this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs. In 1563, John Fox began a memorial of Christian martyrs, starting with the very first one, with Stephen. And and he he ended with the most recent martyrs of his day. He wrote down their stories. He recorded their stories. Why? Because he knew the danger of forgetting the martyrs. He knew the danger of being insensitive to the struggle of other believers. And, And sadly, martyrdom is not a thing of the past. Every day, the Christian church is persecuted in countries throughout the world. You know that today? And and the an estimated 70 million have been martyred, put to death for their faith in Jesus since the time of Christ. 45.5 million, about 65% in just the last 100 years, the last century alone. More Christians were afflicted in the 20th century than all the past centuries combined. The number of Christians killed increased by 60% in 2020 compared to the prior year. Now, why would I suggest a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs?
can you live in that way and still be a follower of God? And if, as we stated, our mission statement, like our goal as, as a church is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, then what should be happening in the lives of those who call Grace Point home? You see, here's what I wrestle with as a pastor. It's not the numbers on Sunday morning. COVID threw that out of the fire. Whoever comes, comes, right? It's not the tithes and offerings. Yes, we need the funds to carry forth the mission, but I'm not going to get concerned and worried about those things. No, I wrestle with this question. Are we becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? You see, in the Scripture, there was a difference between the crowd and the disciples. There was a difference between those who followed Jesus just for the loaves and the fishes and those who followed him with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. Matthew chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 if you want to turn there. As we read there, I trust you will see that regarding those who follow Jesus, there is a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. So Jesus noticed that the crowd around him was growing larger, and he instructed his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. Now, at that time, Jesus was ministering uh, to the crowd near Capernaum, okay, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. He healed many of diseases. He was casting out evil spirits. He preached and he taught, and so so many gathered that they're, they're pressing against him at the beach. But then he says to his disciples, we need to move to the other side of the lake. And I would say, there, that they're already there. Why would Jesus want to do this? Of course we know that he came to seek and save that which was lost, and so he knew, we knew that he needed to keep moving from town to town, preaching the good news, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But the way Matthew words verse 18 tells us that the motive for Jesus' crossing to the other side was more than just wanting to reach people that on the other side. Matthew writes this, when Jesus noticed, this is in the Living Bible, Jesus noticed how large the crowd was growing. He instructed his disciples to cross to the other side. See, I believe that Jesus saw something in the crowd that was not right. The crowd was too large. I mean, Jesus, you, you fed 5,000 along with their family, right? What's, what's too big of a crowd? And, and so what was the issue with this crowd? I think it was more than, than likely he observed in the crowd. He observed this, a desire to follow him on his miracles rather than a desire to serve. They were excited about what Jesus could do for them, right? But did they have a heart to become like Jesus? You see, I, I believe there is a difference between the crowd of believers that we find in our country today. More than 94 million proclaim to be born-again Christians in the United States. But are they all disciples? Are they fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? You see, the crowd loved Jesus and followed him the help that he could bring into their lives. And there was nothing wrong with that at first. I mean, Jesus loves people. He cares for their pain, for their sorrow. Jesus came as a healer. He literally restored people to life. But the disciples had grown from this place of following Jesus out of a hunger for his miracles to following him out of a hunger for him. They wanted more than just what Jesus could do for him. They actually wanted it wasn't the blessing, but the one giving the blessing that mattered the most to them. The crowd enjoyed listening to the teaching of Jesus, 
crowd wanted a, a savior to rescue them from all of their problems. The disciples longed for a king to rule over their lives. The crowd received what they needed from Jesus, and then they went on their way. But the disciples gave up everything to be with Jesus and to join with him in his mission. And we are part of the challenge that our Jesus has set for us. Again, we cannot say we follow Jesus if we don't go where he leads us. Chuck Swindoll gives this illustration in his book, Improving Your Serve. He says this, for a moment, let's pretend you work for in fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding overseas, but to pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and to move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write regularly and give you directions and instructions. I leave. I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. The windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room and she is doing her nails and chewing gum and listening to her favorite rock station. I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has temporarily been turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world is going on, man? What do you mean, Chuck? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah. Sure. We got every one of them. As a matter of fact, Chuck, we had a letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really very interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Man, there's some great stuff in those letters. Okay, you've got my letters. You've studied them and meditated on them and discussed them even memorize them, but what did you do about them? Do? We didn't do anything about them. Sound familiar? You see, Jesus gets to the bottom line when he says to us, in effect, he says, unless you an example of what this means, carry out my commands. Fulfill my commands. Follow my instructions. That's obedience. That's doing what we're told to do. Jesus calls some out of the crowd, and he calls them to discipleship. But in order to become a disciple, here's the reality. We must do something. We need to cross over with Jesus to the other side. We need to step out of the crowd and get into the boat with Jesus. We need to commit ourselves to him, to go where he leads, to do what he does, to live with him at the very center of our lives day after day. Have you committed to Jesus for permission to follow him, and the other is asked by Jesus 
follow him. But both struggle with this call to commitment, and they struggle with the cost of discipleship. The first proves this, that to follow Jesus as a disciple means I must sacrifice. To follow Jesus as a disciple means I must sacrifice. Verse 19. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Now, we don't know who this scribe is. In reality, we don't know his name. We don't know anything about his his background. There were other scribes and teachers who followed Jesus from time to time. But this was one of the few who responded to Jesus with a desire to become a disciple. Maybe he was a part of the crowd and heard the Sermon on the Mount. But maybe he had seen Jesus doing miraculous uh, healing there in Capernaum. And now he, he wants to know more. Now he wants to become a disciple. But notice Jesus doesn't just turn to him and say, okay, you want to be a disciple? Come on, come on, just come on for me, right? No, instead, Jesus asks the scribe to tell us the question. Following Jesus as a disciple becomes okay. Following Jesus as a disciple, it involves sacrifice because no servant is above his master. Listen, if Jesus is rejected and harassed and criticized and should we as followers of Christ expect better treatment from him? Jesus had nothing. He had no home. He had no steady source of income. He didn't even own his own donkey. When he needed one, he had to go borrow one from someone else. Just think about that. The only thing that he owned were the clothes on his back, and he lost those even at the foot of the cross. Jesus lived his life in service to others. He was pressed upon by the crowds. They all wanted his help. He spent many sleepless nights in prayer depended on God, his Father, for every physical need. And so he says, man, even the animals have a place to call their own, but I, I don't have a home. As followers of Christ, we too have become sojourners. We are travelers. We are aliens living on a planet that is not our home. We pass through this life, and what we think we possess is really not ours, right? It all belongs to the Lord, and we're just simply stewards of it for a time. But to be a disciple of take up your cross and follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a Christian who stood up to the Nazis and was killed in a concentration camp in 1945, but he put it this way. He says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Don't respond to that. There's a way the church in America thinks about sacrifice. For, for the most part, I think the church in America has given up this idea of sacrifice as a place that we comfortably eat, right? Are the chairs comfortable? and ignored the challenging verses and we've replaced them with easy services that don't demand too much from us. But it hasn't always been that way for the church. And here's the thing, I don't think it will always be that way for the church. Things are not getting easier. If you pull
calls yourself a follower of Christ in the United States of America. There, there's persecution that's coming, but are we ready to follow Jesus regardless of the cost? Charles Allen, in his book, God's Psychiatry, says this, Today we want God's blessing without the pain of God's purging. We want sermons on how to win friends and how to have peace of mind and how to forget our fears. But we must remember that Christ came to make men good rather than merely to make men good. Christ came to make men good rather than merely to make men good. Listen, to be a disciple of Jesus means that I enter into training with Jesus. I enter into training with Jesus Christ. I understand this today. He trains me oftentimes in trials. He trains me His training is always done out of love. It's never to harm me. It's always to make me stronger. It's always to make me ready for service in the kingdom of God. Verse 21, another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Some speculate that this disciple was Thomas or perhaps Philip. In a parallel gospel in Luke chapter 9, we see that Jesus first approached this disciple and asked him to follow him, but the disciple had an excuse. And when you read the passage, Jesus almost sounds cruel, cruel doesn't he? Like, come on, let the guy go bury his father. Like, what's the big deal? However, in most Eastern cultures, the dead were buried within 24 hours. And so what is most likely happening here is not that this man's father has died. I, I think Jesus could have waited around Instead, the phrase was common. It was a common Near Eastern figure of speech. And really, it referred to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was given. If you think about it like that, that kind of commitment can take a long time, right? If he was young, you're talking about 30, 40 years. And really, this disciple was saying he wanted to be around for the reading of the will. He says, Jesus, I, I, I trust you. I, I want to follow you, but let me get my inheritance first, right? And, and the response given by Jesus indicates that when he calls us to follow, he expects us to obey without delay. When Jesus calls us, when Jesus calls us, we must not hesitate. I was a youth pastor, my best friend used to say, it's like the slow obedience or disobedience, right? The words follow me are in the present to take priority over our obedience to any other obligation, any other duty that we may feel we have. And when there is a conflict, Jesus always comes first. Are you putting Jesus first? Are you paying the price to follow him? Or are you looking around for any and all kinds of excuses to avoid obeying what you know he's saying? Listen, even if those excuses appear to be good, if they're keeping you from following Christ, then they're wrong. Listen, there are a lot of things in this world that could 
disciple is to answer to a much higher call. See, this is the part of a disciple, to do what Jesus asks us to do, regardless of the call and whether or not anyone else around us is doing it. And my, my thinking today is, as I think about where the church is in America today, I ask this question, has the church lost the courage to do what God calls us to do? Has the church lost the courage to do what God's called us to do? What is courage? Very simply, it's this. It's doing the right thing even when you can't see the outcome. Even when you can't see the outcome. On those beaches of Normandy on D-Day, when those troops were getting out of those boats, that was courage, right? It was doing the right thing even when I can't see the outcome. I read a story in The Voice of Martyrs, which is a, a publication that's put out monthly that tells stories of the persecuted church around the world. that attitude with the attitude of the, the disciple who wanted to stick around until his father had passed and he, he received his inheritance, which one was worthy to be called a disciple of Jesus? Mark chapter 10, Jesus is setting out on a journey. And a man runs up to him and, and falls at his feet and he asks him an important question, a very important question. He says, good teacher, what must I do out this young man is, is both wealthy and religious. He's quite a catch, right? And those who saw his life probably thought, man, God's blessed him because of, of how godly he is, and yet something was troubling him, and, and something wasn't right, and so he comes to Jesus for an answer. And Jesus loves his earnestness, and so he gives him an answer in the form of an invitation. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. So 
there for about a month, right? Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. The result, he walked away sorrowful, because the cost of discipleship seemed to be too much. But on another day, Jesus is walking to Jericho, and he sees a wee little man, a wee little man with some leftover shirts and chicken livers, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He also was wealthy, but was he religious? No, not at all. Those who saw Zacchaeus as wealth didn't consider it to be God's blessing. After all, he was a Roman tax collector, and yet something was troubling him, and, and something wasn't right, and, and something intrigued this man enough that he would climb up into a tree just to catch a glimpse of this teacher by the name of Jesus. And when Jesus saw him up there, the Spirit moved him to say, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I'm going to be a guest at your home today. And the result of this encounter was that Zacchaeus, like the young ruler, suddenly understood he couldn't serve both God and man. But, but what was the result? It was so much different. He joyfully gives half of his wealth to the poor, and he repaid those that he cheated. He repaid them four times over what he had stolen. Imagine when all was said and done, he didn't have much left. But understand this, for Zacchaeus, the cost of not following Jesus was just too much. Non-discipleship was too much. Picture this, two men encounter Jesus. One was unwilling to lose his possessions, and the other was unwilling to give. And it makes me ask the question, what was the difference between them? I believe it was the indifference governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, and the power to do what is right. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly the abundance of life that Jesus came to give you. And reflecting on that story, think about what it cost the rich young ruler to keep his possessions. He lost the joy of walking with Jesus. He lost the joy of having fellowship with lost the empowering presence and the joy of the Holy Spirit. He lost the profound sign and wonder and joy and strength and comfort of being a part of Christ's body, the church, to being a part of the everlasting fellowship of the saints. He lost the provision of God's sufficient grace for every need in his life. He lost the triumph and joy of seeing others delivered from the domain of darkness. He lost the abundance. 
treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, our hearts stay with our treasure. When it comes down to it, we will not part with what captures our heart. So I guess the real question for us as a church as we embark on this journey this year is this. It's it's a question that will make all the difference. What is capturing your heart? It's like the rich young man that Jesus says he was struggling with his faith. And if Jesus exposes an idol, simply an idol is something that you really can't give up and live by. Don't walk away. You don't have to walk away. Your story can be different than the rich young man's story. Don't choose the poverty of worldly gain over eternal gain, for you will find that which is more meaningful. Instead of walking away, you're going to turn to your heart. Find whatever situation you need to find your spiritual treasure. Find whatever it truly needs to find to get a glimpse of Jesus, because Christ is the real treasure. Christ is the real treasure. And the Spirit of God can cause, even in this moment, a treasure transfer to happen as we look to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, look to him until you see him. Ask and seek and knock and find. And when you see Jesus, and that's my prayer, you would see Jesus. When you see him, next time see this again, I want to tell you, you will with joy release whatever is captured your heart. You'll follow hard after Jesus because you don't want to be but also to walk in obedience to him. But today I want you to count the cost, but to count the right cost. I implore you, don't walk away. Yes, the cost of discipleship is high. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time to get into his word. It's going to cost you time to get together with other believers. It's a cost to it. But I want to tell you seriously, the cost of you.